Thank you for tuning in to Avant Life's weekly podcast. We hope this message inspires you, stirs your faith, and leaves you blessed. For the uh, last two weeks, we entered a new series called Can I Get a Witness? And um, week one, we had uh, one of our dearest, Rachel Finmore, share her testimony. And last week, we had Jana Nixon, soon to be Giannakis. There's a lot of engagement going on around here. Um, I'm very happy about it. (laughs) Um, She shared her testimony as well. And and we've asked for people who are considered first-generational Christians. So basically, they didn't grow up in a Christian family. They weren't surrounded with in a Christian environment because somebody decided to bear witness of God alive in their life. They met Jesus. And um, we've really been enjoying hearing these stories because the reality is we all have a story, right? We all have this story that we need to actually bear witness to the goodness of God in our life. And so I pray that these have been an encouragement to you to actually figure out what is your story. Do you know what your story is? Can you actually pinpoint the things in your life that you saw an impact of, of Jesus happening. Um, pinpoint, your, pinpoint those moments and, and actually share your story. Um, today is a very exciting day because I am probably going to cry during this session. Yeah, I'll definitely cry. Um, we have the amazing Colin Weeks bringing his testimony. Um, for those of you who don't know, Colin is an incredible worship leader, music director here at Avant Life, and he's in our internship program as well. And uh, he's a first-generation Christian. And so, Colin, welcome. Thank you. Thanks. I can't wait to hear. Hey, everyone. All right. If you address the fact that you're nervous right away, does it make it go away? Not really. <laughs> okay. Um, hi, my name is Colin. Uh, hi. Um, I asked earlier this week, I asked God earlier this week, and I was like, God, what's the, what do you want to say here? What's the point of this? What, what, what do you want to do? And almost immediately I heard, um, Colin, do you believe in this? The Bible, Jesus, this whole thing? And like, do you believe in this? Yep. So what does that tell you immediately? Well, hmm, um, it tells me that I'm here for a reason, um, a very specific reason, a divine reason, and that also tells me that everyone in the room here is also specifically here today and for the two sessions tomorrow um, to hear a story of brokenness and uh, reconciliation in my life and... uh, there has to be, I'm, I'm subscribing to this, uh, the belief that there's a divine purpose to this. And I'm not trying to over-spiritualize it, but I want to say that to uh, invite all of you into that space with me to just say, we're not here for a social gathering or a TED talk, um, but a story that is filled with ups and downs um, and miracles. So, yeah. I'm excited. There's lots of, there's funny stuff in this too, so. <laughs> woo. Um, I'm 26 years old. My name is Colin, and I grew up almost within eyeshot of this building my whole life. My parents live there. Uh, they still live there. So this area is like home turf to me. Um, my family's awesome. I have a mom and a dad and an older sister. Uh, my family is, you know what? It's funny. Coming into church here and experiencing the community here has been huge, but it's also very familiar to me because... Uh, my family's crazy, and there's, we have like a core unit of 10-ish people, 10, 12 people that all live really close together, and we're like really close, and we hang out all the time. My family is like actually friends with each other, so they want to hang out like constantly. Um, I, I was messaging my cousin Tosca. I was like, can you, like, do you have any like funny stories I can share about the family just to like give everyone like an idea? So we were just, the weird thing is my family, like no specific ridiculous events necessarily happen, but everything's just kind of stupid and funny. And our family thinks it's the funnier than anyone else. <laughs> so like a lot of the times when we share stories about our family and we're like hackling up laughing, everyone else is like, that's kind of weird. <laughs> Um, my mom got an e-bike this year for her birthday, <laughs> uh, 
And she's like this tall and has a little red bob cut and my dad bought it for her. Uh, and she's the most nervous person on the planet. Uh, she got like a moped years ago and like rode it maybe five times because she was too afraid to be on the road. So, uh, so that didn't really get any use. So now she has an e-bike and it's hilarious. And when, when we brought it to my aunt's house, the whole family took turns like riding it around the block. And we were all like running to the back of the house to see them at the backside and then running to the front. And we're all like cheering. It's so embarrassing. Uh, and then we spent like 30 minutes laughing at ourselves and thinking we're hilarious, which is just sad. Um, we do a ton of surprises. Like anytime anyone is gone and shows up anywhere, our whole family surprises them like without fail. So it's never surprising anymore. <laughs> but we still think it's hilarious. Um, we have this like repeat family dinner night that happens in our family. Um, so uh, my, mom's, my mom's side of the family is the rambunctious one. My dad's side is like a lot more quiet. Uh, and my mom's side is from Scotland, so they're hilarious and ridiculous. And we have this like repeat dinner night in my parents' place all the time where we'll listen to the Rankin family, which is like a Celtic Canadian folk band, and like the Dixie Chicks. And everyone will be drinking beer till like 4 a.m. and dancing like hobbits and screaming. <laughs> and, then, and then we always get to this moment at the end of the night where we listen to this song called The Eyes of Margaret. And we have a very matriarchal family. So my grandma is like revered and everyone loves her to death. And she's sort of like the, she moved from Scotland. So we kind of like built our family from her big decision. And there's this song called Eyes of Margaret and her name's Margaret and it has nothing to do with her, but it's so emotional. And every time at like 3.30 a.m. it comes on and everyone just starts crying. <laughs> Like every time. It's amazing. It's amazing. Um, my dad and my uncle Pete have this hilarious, stupid rivalry. They're so petty. And they're like, they're both growing their hair out right now because of COVID. And they're like hecking at each other saying like, oh, I'm not going to cut my hair until you cut your hair. And I'm like, and it's getting like longer and they're not like cleaning it up. So they both just have disheveled and both the wives are freaking out about it. Um, and then like my dad got a t-shirt and my uncle Pete got a t-shirt. My dad was like, I have the same shirt as you. He's like, yeah, well, I'm pretty sure I got it like a year before you. And we're fully just having a family dinner and we kind of tune in and they're just having like a real argument about who got the shirt first when everyone knows all well that the wives both went to the same store at different times and bought it for them. So just trying to paint an image here. My family's amazing. Uh, and the older I got in my, in my life and started going to school and meeting people, um, the more I realized how good my life was, like just meeting friends and then like getting invited to their houses and just as your brain develops, you become more perceptive. And I was like, oh, I have a better, like why, why is their situation harder there? Or why is their situation harder there? And like, mm, my, my, my thing's pretty good. Um, and you feel sort of like grateful, but guilty and you don't really know what to do with that information. Um, pardon, I don't know if you can hear how dry my mouth is getting. Mm. Pardon me. Um, we were, my dad started a business when we were young, so that was a little financially tough, but by the time I was old enough to even be sensitive to that, we were pretty financially comfortable. Their marriage was solid, my parents' marriage. Uh, no serious ailments or diseases in our family. Uh, there, was, there was issues, but nothing like, you know, radical. Um, I was, people liked me. I was popular at school. Uh, my cousin was like the most, she was like the super popular girl, so we kind of like, uh, I felt cool because she was popular and that made me more popular. Um, I was good. Like I, a lot of just like default and I'm, I'm, I'm saying this for a reason. I, oh, stick with me. I'm not just bragging here, but um, I was bad at academia. That was a thing. Um, I actually, I actually had some hard times too. I was bullied a little bit. I had one group of four friends and one day the three of them just thought it was funny to to ditch me, that was the term. So they just like figured it out. I was talking to Ben about this. They just figured it out without me noticing. We're like just out somewhere, grade seven, I think, and they just ran. And then they didn't come back, like they just ran. It's like, and you're like in grade seven, you're like 12 or 13, you're like, what? And I just, I just went up crying. So there were some hard times. Um, <laughs> were some hard times. But the point I'm making is things were pretty good. Like uh, if you, think about it like a lottery, I got a pretty good roll out, out of the gate. And I started to be more and more aware of this as I got older, particularly in high school when, you know, people go through puberty and you see everyone's problems start to come up and things, you know, just tension, emotions, all that stuff. And uh, it was in grade 10 that I met Matt Ginakis. Uh Maddie at the time, he was Maddie uh, in another lifetime before he was saved. He was Maddie. And... Uh, 
he didn't want anything to do with me. I thought he was so cool. And he, didn't, he would do this, he would do magic tricks in the hallways at, in high school. And he would wear a McDonald's hat. That was like his thing. And all the grade 12, in grade like nine and eight and stuff, all the grade 12s loved him. So that gave him huge brownie points. He was like really cool if the grade 12s like you. And so I would like follow him around the hallways as his like assistant, even though he never, we never even like talked about it. And I'd be like, oh, like do, the, do that trick, do that. As if I knew it really well. And he just like cold shouldered me. Didn't want anything to do with me. Um, but grade 10 hits and we get paired up. We're both in drama, in high school drama, and we get paired up for a drama scene. It's a, it's a two person scene. And so we go to my house to run the lines and found out we were best friends like on the spot. It was, uh, every sentence was completed by the other person. We were like sore ribs, struggling to breathe, laughing at everything the other person said. And my parents were like ducking in the doorway to like see if we were okay. Um, (laughs) and that was... That was a pivotal moment in my life, and I look back at it now with extra um, appreciation and reverence, especially with God being in the picture now, because Mac grew up Christian, so he had a foundation there, and I choose to look at him coming into my life as an angel, really. Like, that was a a big moment for me and God invading my world, because I grew up, uh, I didn't say this yet, I grew up in a totally secular household, loving, amazing family, but spiritually, like, no discussion at all. The, the purpose of life is be nice, uh, don't be a jerk, uh, work hard. That was kind of like the, the mantra or the, the mission statement. Um, and Matt and I started getting really close, and we would have sleepovers all the time. And he had um, glow-in-the-dark stars, those stickers you could put on your roof. So when you turn the lights off, it's like the, the constellations. And we would start having deep chats. That was the first time I had deep chats. And I was like, oh, you can cool, you can do this? Do you remember like the first deep chats you had? And it's like, wow, you can process with someone and this is amazing. We would listen to Bon Iver, the MySpace transmissions. I don't know if anyone heard those. They were, that was life-changing. Um, and uh, by the end of high school, uh, I was kind of interested in music and in drama. And I eventually, was kind of on the fence and I eventually teetered towards music. And I discovered John Mayer. Oh. And I was like, this guy's cool. Um, I had religiously memorized his entire life story via Wikipedia and YouTube interviews. Um, and I, I would do this thing. I'm sure someone else, I hope someone else has done this because it's embarrassing. But I would, I would look at his birthday and then I would look at um, the milestones in his life and his music career and calculate exactly from his birthday how old he was when he achieved those. And then I would compare my, I'd be like, okay, so he's like 22 and he put his first record out. I'm like 21 and I just put one out. So I'm ahead of him. That's good. Like check that box. And that was like, that was how I like checked in with myself to see if life was going okay. Because at this point, um, I, that was that was the big motive in life, like kick butt, you know, win at something, and music seemed to be the thing I was I was good at, so I went for that. Um, <laughs> I was so obsessed with John Mayer. I'll move on from him in a second, but he has a uh, his high school <laughs> his high school yearbook quote is um, it's cool because he became famous. It, it says this: I know that school never did anything for me. It never made sense to me. I knew that when I was thirteen, what I wanted to do to be a musician. And like it, it happened and he got famous, so it, it works out really cool. But I brought my yearbook and I'm so ashamed of my write-up because it's so embarrassing. Um, and this is the first time I'm reading it out in public. So I'm just going to get this out for you. Okay, this is, this is how much I love John Mayer. <laughs> I'm taking a big risk with my future. <laughs> Whether my chance of success is high or low doesn't really matter to me because there's nothing else I'd rather be doing. And then like five indents, here we go, period. <laughs> ah, it's so bad, so bad, it's so embarrassing. And then everyone else just came out and they were all kind of funny and like tongue in cheek and I was like, this is awkward. <laughs> Anyways, um, so high school, moves, move, we move on from high school and the next three years I'm going in and out of music colleges because my parents were like, you should go to music and I didn't want to, so I'll go meet in the middle, I'll go to music school and working in coffee shops trying to find my way. And as my brain matures, I start asking some bigger questions. Uh, but I found that I didn't have good answers to them. Uh, sort of big but simple and really difficult questions. Why am I here? Uh, what is the point of all of this? Where will I go when I die? Why am I so privileged? Uh, why does bad stuff happen? And uh, I've been given so much already. I felt I had a good head start, but I'm not equipped to answer these questions. Uh, they never just, they weren't clear. And I remember hearing from older people uh, a, a swath of different answers. So I was like, no one really 
this seems to be like challenging for everyone. There isn't like a clear, obvious thing here. So that's frustrating and um, intriguing. Uh, and I was kind of thinking about it. Throughout childhood, you have, you're sort of got like a tool belt, and you're equipping yourself with different tools to survive in the world. So um, counting, how to speak your language, how do you behave in social situations, um, respect, manners, paying bills, opening a bank account, all those. People on the internet now call that adulting. Uh, that's a new term for it. Uh, and those are all simple things, but there's like one belt loop that doesn't have a tool in it. And when does that one come into play? And everyone's got their own tool that they use. And, and maybe these questions I'm, I'm asking myself, uh, maybe that tool is, is the one that works for these questions. Because none of these other tools help me deal with the big questions. Like, what's the point of this? Uh, and I, like maybe asking my parents here and there, but no one really has an answer. Um, yeah. So... Uh, a few years pass after high school, and a friend of mine, Eric, um, FaceTimes me, and he's like, you should move to Montreal. It's really cool. Music scene's happening there. And being impulsive, a month later, I'm on a plane with my guitar in a suitcase, and I'm like, going for it. Um, he said this. He was like, he's, think about it this way. If you, uh, if you do this move, and it's the worst decision you ever made, it'll still impact you more than whatever you're doing now is impacting you. It'll still change your life, have a bigger alter, uh, it'll alter your life more than anything else you're up to. So I was like, sold, let's stir the pot a little bit. And this is where things uh, start to get more interesting. I've now moved away, um, and I'm labeling it as like a, a career move, like I'm going for music, so there's more pressure now. I've got this yearbook quote everyone knows about, and I'm gonna do the thing. I even started a YouTube channel, so like now I'm like, uh, there's accountability here. And I've moved across, uh, moved across the country to pursue this music thing, whatever that even means. Um, wondering, will my grad quote be prophetic or embarrassing? And it turns out it's kind of embarrassing. Um, <laughs> and I spend the next two years in Montreal making music and going on tours to Ottawa and Toronto and stuff like that and getting into a lot of romances, a lot of relationships, and just kind of messing around, sort of changing directions a lot and having fun. Um, and throughout all of this, the same questions, that same set of questions are still bothering me. They're still, uh, it's like maybe a storm cloud in the distance, and you can see it's kind of coming closer, and you're like, oh, and you keep kind of forget about it so, so you don't have to, you know, feel anxiety. And uh, yeah, I don't know. The simple idea that working hard enough and being a good person seems uh, suspiciously more and more shallow to me. I'm like, really? I'm like, really? Is that... Uh, is, that, is that it? And now I'm alone. I'm, I'm away from my parents. So, and, and I hit the first Montreal winter. It gets really cold, really cold, like to the point where you don't even go outside. Um, and I'm in this little tiny apartment, and it's just like, oh. And my roommate happened to be a really difficult person to live with. <laughs> and the questions become more poignant. What are we doing? Why am I doing any of this? Is everything subjective? Who can possibly say what's right or wrong? Uh, maybe even morality itself is subjective. If a, if a snake has to kill a mouse in order to survive and feed itself, uh, if I get hungry and I go rob someone's house to feed myself, why is that morally wrong? Like, on what grounds can you actually stand to even make the case that that's morally wrong? Like, isn't that just what's... Uh, isn't that just, like, my own kind of moral compass? Is that really... Like, are we just running this whole thing? And, like, really, like, annoying, frustrating questions where you're kind of deconstructing everything. And... I recognize, like, okay, obviously to keep society sort of functioning, we have to sort of subscribe to these ideas, like, hey, you be a nice person, I'll be a nice person, we'll try our best, like, mm, hold things together. But, like, really? Like, is that where we're just kind of, like, going by the seat of our pants here? And uh, just, like, like, just could not stop thinking about it, just more and more and more. And, but I'm with my friends and we're listening to Beyonce and everyone's drinking and it's 2 a.m. and they're having fun, so shut up. I'll just like chill out and enjoy it. Like eventually at some point you have to like kind of curb it. Um, and my friends would talk to me with these. We'd sit down and have like big deep chats, but we'd finish, we'd share some cool ideas and then they'd go home and seemingly re-engage with life with no problems. And I'd kind of go home and be like, <sighs> and I didn't want to be like Mr. Negative, but like these are ridiculous questions and I need answers to them. Um... As this growing storm cloud looms in the distance and gets bigger and bigger, I resort to a handful of different remedies. I give many things a try. Um, like I said before, a ton of romances. Uh, ugh, so many. And you have that, 
exciting feeling of maybe now my life's going to start. Maybe like this is the thing that sort of begins the next chapter that I want. And, and then it ends like two weeks later or two months later. Or mm. uh, I tried the wanderlust thing. I actually impromptu flew to Australia in a heat of um, terrified passion. I was like, I need to do something. And my friend was going to Australia. So that's kind of interesting. Um, and I went to Australia and lo and behold, my problems followed me there. I, I figured, Hey, maybe I can go across, really far away geographically and just reset my avatar. I can just recreate myself and my problems will die with the old self and rock and roll. And I can just figure it out from there. And nope, does not work. I can testify to that. Uh, Australia is amazing, but after about a month and a bit, I, I was there for two months. Uh, like really depression just like sunk back in. It was like, it was almost worse because I felt guilty about it. Um, Career milestones also were a thing. I remember uh, there was an Instagram page called Pick Up Jazz. It's like a pretty big deal music page for me at the time. They had like, I think 500,000 followers. So it was like, and they, they do this thing where they share musicians that they like and then everyone kind of supports each other. And I was walking down the street one day and I just see like Instagram notifications like flying and I was like, whoa, and I open it and... Uh, they've posted one of my videos and I got like 500 new followers in an afternoon. Call all my friends. I'm freaking out. Same feeling like, oh, this is like now my career is going to jumpstart. This is going to be the thing. Um, and you feel that like just around the corner, like I'm so close to feeling okay in my soul. I'm so close to feeling rest in my soul. And I, I understand what's going on to a degree. There's some sort of purpose here. Um, I know I can see some sort of vision. But then like a week passes and it's kind of like, all right, life moves forward. Uh, minimalism, another one. I was like, oh, okay, this is interesting. It's aesthetically pleasing. You can get rid of a bunch of your material things and sort of like focus on what's important. And I really like that one. And I'm still kind of a minimalist. But uh, again, there's like a honeymoon phase. And then X amount of time goes by and, huh, all right, what's the next thing? Like, okay, I did that. I checked that off the box. What's the next thing? I remember Maddie actually challenging me on minimalism. He was like, what are you doing that for? And I was like, I like it. And he was like, yeah, he was like pushing into me a bit. Um, and I just, I wouldn't budge. I was like, no, this is good for me. Uh, <laughs> uh, meditation. We've, a lot of us have been there. It helps you calm down, but answers are still there. Like the, or excuse me, the questions are still there. Like this does not help me with these questions, but I feel calm. Um, there's a C.S. Lewis quote I want to read to you. And it's profound to me. It says, if the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Just as if there were no light in the universe and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never know it was dark. Dark would be without meaning. So we're all suspicious of meaning. We can't avoid that existential itch that we feel in certain moments in our lives. And he's making the case here that the fact that you can feel that proves that there's some meaning to this. Um, if there wasn't meaning, we would be completely, completely uh, obno obnoxious to it. That's not the right word. Completely unaware of it. Uh, and so here I am in this stage of my life, and there's this existential itch that no one has the answer to. And it hurts more and more. As time goes on, it becomes more and more personal. It gets less theoretical and philosophical and begins to enter the personal domain more. The storm cloud is getting closer to the center of me. Uh, if there's no point to any of this, then why should I even get out of bed? And that was, uh, I read this book called Sapiens, actually, which is a very interesting book that takes um, an atheistic worldview and basically just says you're a blip in, in uh, a big tapestry. And it's interesting and sort of fed my intellect, but left me like deeply depressed after because I was like, there's literally no meaning to my life. Like what's, if there's no meaning to this, like why am I getting out of bed? And it, there was a physical, uh, a physical like forcing of myself every single day for a for uh, a couple, maybe a couple months specifically in the winter, in my second year, where I had to force myself out of bed just to go to work because it's like, I can't do this. Like, I, I just feel like uh, I became nihilistic. That's sort of the, the uh, clinical term for it. And it, nihilism basically means there's no purpose to anything. That's a bad place to be in. And I was in that spot and it's cold and I'm away from home and my career is not really going anywhere and my friends are having fun and they're lovely, but like... Oh, like what are we doing? And uh, I did think about suicide. I never would do it. I'm going to be, I'll be real here. I never, I knew I would never do it, but it was on my mind constantly. I was dancing with it. And I thought of how satisfying it would feel to do it 
and go out and know that everyone would finally see how much I was struggling. Like, oh, wouldn't it just, it was like, it felt like a guilty indulgence. I was like, I would just love to know, to have people see me for really what's going on under the surface. Uh, my life up until this point started, my life at this point started to feel like a masquerade party. Like everything, and this is why I set up the beginning. Like really, I, I came out with flying colors and lots of, lots of great bonuses, head starts, if you will. And, um, and everyone around me, like my life still looked really good. I was like the guy doing music and like got a little bit of attraction with the music. And so like, it was like, oh, Colin, like, you know, he's going to be successful and do the thing. And inside, I felt like a rotting apple core, just like, ugh. And the juxtaposition almost makes it worse because people will approach you um, and with this sort of pre precept of uh, you must be great, it looks like everything's great. And, and then it reminds you of how not great you are. And it's just this weird, tough spot to be in. Um, somewhere along the way, I was at music college and I met uh, a guy named Ben. Uh, maybe I shouldn't say his name, but too late. I met a guy named Ben. Uh, he's not here, but anyways. Um, <laughs> he's amazing. He is a goofball. He is like the most creative guy you've ever met. Uh, honestly, like if you could parallel him with another group of musicians, he's a, he's a musician. Uh, I would put him at like a Beatles level um, ability to be creative in terms of like he's amazing um, and just such a like child boy genius. He's like super goofy and childish and just has the most brilliant ideas. And he's Chris. He grew up Christian, um, which I didn't know until quite a bit later. But one night, uh, if you met Yitzi, by the way, Yitzi had moved to Montreal as well at this point. So he's there and Ben's there and I'm there. And uh, one night we're at Yitzi's place after an event or a concert or something. And Ben looks at me and says, hey, can I pray for you? I'm like, what? Like, ooh, okay. Like, I'm, I don't know, sure, that's interesting. No one's ever asked me that in my life. I've really had, like, no experiences with church up until this point. Uh, never went to church as a kid and then, like, walked away, like, just nothing. So I was like, okay, cool. Like, I don't even know what that means. And we sat on the edge. It was a studio apartment, so the bed's in the kitchen and the living room. Like, it's all one room. So we sat on the edge of this bed, and he just put his hand on my shoulder and just said the nicest things. It was the most simple, beautiful, profound prayer to me. And he said things like, God, would you just bless Colin with creativity? I pray he would laugh so hard that his stomach hurts and that he has fun and that he would love people. And just like sunshine and daisies. And um, at this point, I was, pretty in a, in a, I was in a pretty tough space. And it, it was like a ray of sunshine coming through dark clouds, really. And I'm like not a spiritual guy at all. Like I really, I, I love like fantasy video games and movies and magic and stuff. And I wanted it to be real. But like when push comes to shove, the world is material. And that was like, that was me. And this guy just prayed for me. And whoo, like my, my chest is gutted. And I looked at him and I was like, I don't know what just happened. But that was amazing. Thank you. That was, I needed that so much. And I want to clarify something. Ben, um, bless his heart, was like, not uh, the perfect image of what a Christian should look like. Really, like he, he carried no spiritual disciplines in his life. He didn't pray as far as I knew. He didn't read the Bible. He didn't go to church. He didn't talk about his faith at all. Like he, he, he was not running the good race. He just like had this nominal uh, childhood Christian faith and prayed for me. Um, and I want to stop actually quickly and just emphasize that because when I reflect on that, um, that's so powerful to me that uh, when we pray and we ask God and we bring God into a situation, it's not because we're impressive or talented or disciplined. It's because he's perfect and he's amazing and he loves us so deeply. And I look back at that with such clarity. Um, there was a stone casing around my heart and it was the first crack. And someone prayed who does not represent Jesus beautifully at all, to be frank. And, uh, something happened. And at the time I was like, okay, like beautiful and I feel good. And you know, you move on. But looking back on it, that was like the first crack in the stone. Um, Ezekiel 36, 26 says this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will, re I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And that is so clear to me what happened. Um, and I'll just add in at the end, which is hilarious. Yitzi, was there as well, and he was passed out next to me on the bed. He was like, he's like, I'm not interested in this. 
And he like fully just conked out. He was dead asleep. And he's, he belongs to this church now and he's Christian now, by the way, which is hilarious. But he was like, no, not my time, not my time. And so he was just, yeah, sleeping. Um, and some more time passes and things are rolling. And Maddie meets some Australians in North Vancouver. And he starts FaceTiming me intermittently. He was, uh, he was my bedrock in so many things. Whenever I would reach like really seriously low points, he would, uh, he would be the one I'd call. Interesting. And uh, he would just like delicately sprinkle in God things. God's, Maddie grew up Christian, kind of really, wasn't really walking with God. God re-entered his life boldly, and he's starting to share this with me really delicately because I'm, I'm at the point where, like, uh, when you say God, I have to translate it to universe. That's, like, kind of where I'm at. Okay, the universe, like, interesting. But, like, I can't get behind this God thing and, like, the he thing. Like, uh, too much. Um, but he's very gentle, and we have these talks, and he's just, like, boop, like, a little bit there, a little bit there. This happened. I'm like, okay. I'm like, I'm reading a fantasy book. I was like, oh, this is really cool. I'm telling you about the events that happened in this like Japanese medieval fantasy. And he's like, that's really biblical. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, the Bible is actually full of like really cool action adventure stories. I was like, oh, like I just didn't know anything. So, so he's like slowly, slowly kind of downloading things into me. Um, and I brought another piece of text here and it's uh, a journal. I got into this thing where I was doing daily journaling um, and I, f- I opened to the day after my birthday. And birthdays, if you're not in a good place, can be the worst days because you're supposed to be happy on your birthday. And if, if you're not and your birthday rolls by, it just feels worse. It's like salt in a wound. So here is the journal entry the day after my birthday. And I'll, I'll, I'll start by saying this. The, the day before, uh, in the morning, I would write these at like 5 a.m. I was like, this is going to be the best birthday ever. Like, I hope nothing bad happens. I'm going to be so happy. So here's this, April 18th, 2018, this is two years ago. Hello, it's getting, there's some, bear with me. It's a, it, no one's supposed to read this except for me. Um, hello, I'm 24, strange. It's 5.30 a.m. again, going back to Carousel. That's the coffee shop I worked at. I don't even know how to explain yesterday. Right now, I feel all right. Definitely, definitely a little stale bread, but it's expected. Ugh, shreddies with chocolate soy milk does not sit well in my belly right now. Um, I have so much to say, but nothing at all to say right now. My thoughts just feel like loud voices, all trying to be heard, but I can't really lock down and listen to one. Okay, yesterday. So basically, I finished work, and as I got closer to this, uh, as I got closer to home, this heavy coat of blue just started weighing down and expanding around me. I fought with it for a long time, but fell victim after. I suppose an hour or so, I, I escape and go for a walk to clear my head. Doesn't work at all. I'm strolling through Park La Fontaine, trying to hold back my tears. What is going on? I'm interrogating myself. Now I'm sad and angry. Great. I head home feeling like absolute garbage while also beating myself up for falling victim on my damn birthday. I can't possibly see my friends tonight like this. Also, super negative thoughts about all of my friends are running rampant. Finally, I reach out to Jared. That's it, Matt. Nickname. Um, I reach out to Jared, who calls me immediately. Boom. Time to talk about God. No way around it. He listens to what's on my mind like a pro. And then he just starts talking about his own life. These Australian mates of his who have been totally challenging him to reconnect with God. He's 10 minutes into this wild story, and I don't really, uh, I, I don't really want to hear it. What does this have to do with me? Somehow or another, the story eventually comes full circle and just completely pierces right through me. I admit what I'm afraid of and why I'm angry. Very specifically, uh, the handcuffs break I feel the tense grip on my body loosen itself. Maddie was an angel yesterday. I don't understand what's really going on, but in all caps, you have my attention. I'm listening. Just like reading that back and reflecting on like how much garbage and dirt I had to siphon through to get to where I'm at today, and I'm still being challenged, but like it's a process for me. Um, I think a lot of times in... Church, you hear these uh, incredible stories of God just speaks to someone and they see this image of God or something, this revelation, and their life is just like gutted and they have these these crazy turnaround moments. And that uh, that happens, it really does, but it did not happen to me. 
Um, if you've ever seen Bruce Almighty, there's that scene I love. He meets uh, Morgan Freeman, who's God in the movie, and he pulls open those, that, like, the big gray cabinet uh, with the filing folder, and it goes and it hits him in the tummy, and he flies. But those old like, 80s gray cabinets with the yellow filing folders, I always think of this. But for me, uh, um, stepping up to faith was not this profound one like instant 180 moment, but felt like I was pulling out the drawer and going through each folder. I mean, like, okay, uh, death. What does the Bible say about this? And what do I think about it? And sex and marriage and um, purpose and all these identity, all these things. And I, one by one, like slowly, slowly sifting through. Um, and it's frustrating because there's all this talk about this miraculous God, but why is this happening at a non-miraculous speed? Which is funny because in hindsight, like honestly, so much changed so quickly, but in the moment, it doesn't feel very fast. Um, so I come home. Uh, oh, sorry, I skipped. The, so, so Maddie and I are chatting, and one day he just calls me, and he's so authoritative in this moment, and he's like, uh, I'm planting a church, and I want you to be here. Uh, <laughs> and I don't, honestly, I don't know what happened. I was like, okay, okay. Like, I'll, yeah, I'll be there. And I mean, I guess that's just God working through me. Um, and so I said yes, and like right like that, I was like, I'm going back to, and I was kind of ready to go home. I was like really struggling at this point in Montreal, and I was, I felt like I was at the point where, okay, I'm willing to try anything at this point. Like, I need to just start from the ground up, and even the most um, uh, obviously accepted truths in my life, like let's just turn it over again and ask another time. Like what's, doubting all my doubts essentially. So I fly home, meet up with Maddie, and we just start, and he's like giving me books, read this, read this, talk about this, challenge me on this. It's so, it's so in your face. And you're like, that's a bad idea. I don't like this belief. And why does this make sense? And, um, uh, it, I remember meeting the Australians too, and being like offended by how in your face they are. I was like, I was like, these are not my people. <laughs> um, if you've seen like my big fat Greek wedding, I felt like the white family and they're like the Greek family. <laughs> and and it doesn't help that I'm the vegan guy, so it makes me think of the, mom, he's vegetarian, and she's like, it's okay, I make lamb. Um, they're just like so abrasive, but so loving, and you don't know what to do with it. Um, so I was, that was challenging. But I start going to Matt and Amanda's for Tuesday night dinners. I'm home now, and we're having these deep chats. I later found out that's called a life group. They, 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 were, they were very like subtle about it. They're like, just come for dinner, it's cool. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Um, and it was so special. They held such a profoundly safe space for me to eventually get to the point where I could just like take my sledgehammer and do bull in a china shop with them and just tell them everything that was on my mind. And they just listened. They just listened and they didn't have answers, frankly, for most of my questions. They're difficult questions to answer. Um, and I think, uh, as Christians, you want to have like, this is for me at least, you want to have the perfect arguments and perfect answers for people and just say like one sentence and someone's like, God, I believe now. And everything's like crazy. But like a lot of times you're just like, oh, I don't know how to answer that question and this is difficult and I'm struggling too. Uh, and so they held space for me. And there's this beautiful quote from uh, Rick Warren. We actually just read on the podcast the other night, but it says this, uh, our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. The second is that to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. And so I'm in this weird space because I'm like, I fundamentally disagree with you guys on like big issues, but you're showing love to me. And I'm like, ah, you know, like, because I should, we shouldn't hang out, but they're loving on me, and this is unique, and I haven't experienced this before. Usually, in the world, um, if you disagree with someone, you just turn away and go talk to other people, because it's your right to do that, um, which is good, but here's them, and they're pursuing me, and they're inviting me over, and they're being convicted, and they're being bricks about what they believe in, and loving on me at the same time, and it's such a profound combination, the two of those um, the pairing of Matt and Amanda was brilliant. Matt has this longevity and Christian foundation he grew up with in this amazing family and our best friendship. And Amanda's got this like brand new Christian thing. And she's also like, um, just been in the world her whole life. So the two of them, the duality of it was a, a potent concoction for me. Um, just being able to sort of bounce back and forth between the two. Uh, what began to happen Sorry, I'm a little over my time here, but I'm, I'm getting there. What, what began to happen is I wanted Christianity to be true. This is so essential for us. You have to want it to be true before you can reason with it. Um, if someone doesn't see the outcomes and promises of Christianity as desirable, no amount of debate will work. 
You can sit someone down for four hours and drill them perfectly with executed apologetics and a whole discourse, and you can bullseye every target and nail it, but it won't mean a thing if they're not interested, if they don't want it to be true. And the stone casing that forms around a heart is very strong. And so what happened first with Matt and Amanda, because of their witness to me, was uh, my desires changed. I was like, oh, actually, I see how this, if this were true, it's kind of nice. Like, that kind of sounds good. And it's not until that moment when someone's um, attracted to it that you can actually present strong reason and, and reason with them. Because if they don't want it, like, you can't, you just can't reason with someone who doesn't, who has no interest in it. Uh, Something Amanda said to me pierced my heart. I always remember this. She said, Colin, a God-sized hole can only be filled by God. It's like, oh, that's just, yeah, that, that's what it feels like. And another crack in the stone. And one of the first sermons I heard Ben preach, he read a passage of scripture that ruined me. You often hear people say the Bible is living literature. And what they mean by that is as you begin to engage with it and read it, it reads you. And Ben, I think it was Ben, he said uh, a he quoted Jesus in a sermon uh, in Matthew 7, and he says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Oh, that's me. If you've ever had that experience where a sermon just like zeroes in on you, I was like, whoa, I feel my whole life like I've been building up over and over again. And every time something tough happens, it just falls apart. Like the sand is, it feels like I'm building on sand. Uh, and Hebrews says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must give account. That's what happened. Like those, those pieces of scripture get read out to you as you begin to engage with all this. And it's like a sword. Like it just goes right to the marrow. Uh, this funny story, I was talking with Maddie's dad, who's amazing, and I was reading this book, Mere Christianity, and it's sort of C.S. Lewis's Apologetics 101, and he looks at me, he's like, that book's going to ruin your life. And I was like, I kind of like giggle with him, but internally I was like, nope, like I'm, I'm here for another couple months, and then I'm, I'm, I'm hitting the high road, like no way, I just, I, I'll, I'll be able to, to intellectually beat this, I, I know I can find loopholes in it. And that was two years ago, just about two years ago, and I'm fully committed to Jesus now, so... That's pretty hilarious. Um, <sighs> Ravi Zacharias says this beautiful quote. He says, Jesus Christ didn't come into the world to make bad people good. He came into the world to make dead people live. Jesus didn't die so that we could be right, so that we could win arguments, have controversial political views, or have fun communities and social groups that we feel good about. He died so that we could have eternal life. There's a big difference there. And I came into this um, looking at it from a moral perspective. Well, it makes you a better person, makes you feel good about yourself, you know, surface level. And those are beautiful, valuable things, but that's not the core purpose of this gospel. Um, Matt and Amanda didn't have me over for dinner so they could challenge my opinions and win arguments. They hosted me for dinner because they wanted to see my life changed. They wanted me to meet Jesus. They wanted me to see, uh, they wanted to see my heart beat again. And they wanted to see the old pass away in my life and the new come into eternal life. Uh, C.S. Lewis says this. I love quoting him. He says, if we let him, for we can prevent him if we choose, he will make the feeblest and filthy of us, filthiest of us into a god or goddess, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine, a bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. This process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for. Nothing less. He meant what he said. So uh, maybe you can, you can give me some emotional music. Thank you. <laughs> it helps. It helps. Um, Matt and Amanda's witness to me, and everyone else's, by the way. I'm using them as my, my scapegoats here, but uh, honestly, so many people here were rocks and, uh, for me to hold on to. But uh, 
the power in their witness was the depth of their conviction. These weren't um, political views or opinions, they were convictions. These are things people are willing to uh, give their lives for. These are things people are willing to sacrifice what others think of them in the moment um, because they're so deeply rooted, these convictions are so deeply rooted that they're not willing to budge on them. And while it's confronting, it's incredibly powerful to see, wow, like, I've been running around in this playground and I, I can't seem to get anything right and these two are doing something and these, this whole group of people are doing something and it's, it's confusing to me, but it's not shifting. They're standing on concrete right now. Like, how do I get, how do I get what they have? The power in their witness in hindsight to me was the strength of their conviction. These people were bricks. They're like, no, we believe in this. This is the truth. This is the way. This is the life. Jesus, like we, come on. And it's confronting. But at the same time, I'm coming from a world where uh, you're supposed to believe a new thing every two weeks. And there's a new, you got to understand this now. And this is now, what now should we believe? What now should we believe? It's a shifting, shifting sands. And here's this group of people and they're in my face and they're lovely and they are built on a rock. They are built on something that I can't see, but clearly has such a profound difference in their lives. Um, my dad used to always say that religion is something people cling on to for hope when times get tough. I disagree. When the illusion of self-sufficiency is shattered, the idea that our morals or our achievements, our political ideologies or relationships or philosophical meanderings can provide the answers to life's biggest questions, when we realize that just won't do, we are not meagerly lacking hope. We've just realized that apart from Jesus, we have none. So... Uh, if you're seeking, um, I want to encourage you to lean in. There's so much over the crest of that hill. There's so much. My life has been so profoundly shifted in the last two years. I can't even, oh, I don't even know how to get into it. I guess I am getting into it. Um, but I suppose I want to kind of wrap up with this. When someone is on their deathbed, no matter what culture you come from, uh, you offer deference and a sort of reverence to them. You, you humble yourself, you quiet yourself, and you listen to the final words they're going to speak to you. Um, it doesn't matter where you come from. That's kind of a, a thing that everyone just sort of innately knows. When someone's going to pass or leave, uh, listen to what they have to say and take it with, um, uh, take, it, take it with a lot of respect and, and hear it out. Uh, in Jesus' Last Supper, his farewell discourse, this is the night before he's going to be taken from his, from his crew. He spoke intentionally to his disciples. These are the, his last moments. This is the final moment for him to say, hey, like I need you to get a few things certain. I need you to get a few things straight here because he was going to leave the next day. John 13, he said this, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So Jesus is saying, love as I have loved you. How did Jesus love them? He gave his life for them. He sacrificed his life. He was, he's God, and he sacrificed his life for a small group of people, but ultimately for all of us. And he's commanding them in that moment. This is his, his final deathbed speech, if you will. And he's saying, you need to understand this. You need to love each other as I'm loving you. You need to be prepared to sacrifice what you want temporarily or what's most convenient for you and lay that down and serve other people. This is, in the Old Testament, we got love, uh, love each other as you love yourself. That's great. But he's saying love as I have loved you. He's raising the bar here. And so he's putting that on us. So I, I've... I want to just, um, I'm bring, in bringing Matt and Amanda's testimony forward and, sorry, testimony, they're witnessing to me forward and keeping in mind what Jesus has said here, there's incredible intellectual depth to this, uh, to this faith, there's incredible philosophical ideas and I've, I've gone through a lot of them and they're great and we should pursue them, but the core of this gospel is loving people, it's loving people, it's sacrificing my life for others. Um, my salvation is not for me. It's for other people. Your salvation, if, you're, if you've said yes to Jesus, is, uh, it's for you, of course, but it's mostly for other people. Your gifts in your life are not for you to enjoy and indulge in. They're for other people. So um, as an encouragement or a challenge to you, uh, 
when you come to church and you look at this, is it like, okay, what do I get about it? Get out of this? What does this church give me? How, how do I enjoy this? Is, is it perfect? Do I like the lights? Do I like the music? Do I like this preaching style, the aesthetic? Are you, are you coming to it from a consumer perspective where you're asking what you get out of it? Or have you heard the call from Jesus to lay down your life and build his kingdom for other people? There are so many people out there like me who have maybe materially fantastic lives who are so, so, so broken inside and desperate for a, a glimmer of hope. So um, pursue the arguments, pursue the intellectualism, but my goodness, Jesus is asking us to lay our lives down for each other. I hope that when people come to Avant Life and they see our community, they are shocked by how willing we all are to, to serve each other and go out of our way, even if we're starving and we have a headache, to go out of our way to make someone's day just 1% better uh, and, and maybe bring them 1% closer to Jesus. Um, so the two things I'm emphasizing, the power of prayer, it is God's strength, not ours. Uh, so never stop praying and uh, allow that sacrificial love that Jesus is commanding us to do to be the thing that bears witness to those around you in your life. Not your intellectualism, not your leadership, not your success, but your, your servant-hearted humility. Um, so we'll go into this last song, and I want to prompt all of you to just open your hearts right now and let God speak to you tonight. He is so here, it's ridiculous. And uh, yeah, so let me, let me pray. And then we'll, we'll get into the last worship song. Heavenly Father, thank you for tonight. God, thank you for the opportunity to share my story with a lot of people who I don't know. God, I pray that you would speak to each and every individual in this building tonight, God. I believe that every single person is here for a reason, God. It is not coincidence or by mistake, Lord. And I pray that you would pour your heart into these people, that when they look at others around them, they would see them through the lens of Jesus not through the lens of their own fleshly uh, perspectives, God, but through the lens of Jesus, Lord. I pray that every single person here would go forth this week and feel compelled to lay themselves down for the people around them. Even in the most mundane tasks, Jesus, would your voice whisper to us and Holy Spirit, would you convict us going forward to behave as Jesus did. That C.S. Lewis quote says, would we be mirrors reflecting a perfect image two people of Jesus' face. So Lord, I pray that every single person in this room would go out and, and just bear witness to the incredible life-changing power of your word and your resurrection. In your heavenly name, Jesus, amen. amen. We hope you enjoyed this message. We would love you to subscribe to our weekly podcast. Other ways you can connect with Avon Life is through YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. Or check out our website at avantlifechurch.com.